Welcome back to another episode of the Humble Perspectives podcast with Steve Humble. In 1995, I bought the newly released Chris Christopherson CD, A Moment of Forever. As Chris was singing the first verse of the song Shipwrecked in the 80s, everything stopped and I was locked into the song. My first thought that was was that Chris must have been on the same journey that I and many of my friends had gone through in the 1980s. However, after thinking about it again, I I knew his story was unique to him and his journey was much different and far darker than mine. Still, Chris's song resonates with many of my own memories from the 1980s. I will be reading about a number of those along with some truly good memories also in the next few chapters of my book for such a time as this. I don't fully know what help Chris found, but I do know that he's lived a far more stable life in the years after that. However, I know that it was the faithfulness of God that has held me true and that all along the way Patricia, my children, and a number of brothers and sisters in Christ have played a great part by being stewards of God's grace and sharing that grace with me, as is described in 1 Peter 4, 8-11. And now, chapter 19 of For Such a Time as This, Moving to Lexington. The most memorable part of that holiday was hearing on December 26th that Minneapolis was having an unusually large snowstorm. 20 inches fell before it was over. We left for the drive back to Minnesota that evening, and after driving all night, we were able to make it to our house on the morning of the 27th, before another 16 inches buried us on the 28th. Upon entering the house, we found part of our dining room ceiling had fallen. An ice bridge had built up in a valley on the roof and heavy snow on top of the ice had caused heat from escaping from the poorly insulated or kept heat from escaping from the poorly insulated house and had melted ice. Therefore, with nowhere else to go, water had found a way into the attic and then down through the ceiling. Minneapolis had a record-breaking 109 inches of snow that winter, and we were trying to sell a house. After we repaired the ceiling, two of our friends from the servants, Ron Wolf and Bill Mitchell, professional painters, came over and in one evening made quick work of painting the ceiling of the living room and dining room area. We had listed the house with Steve Nichols, a realtor, and another friend from community. He showed the house as often as he could, but there were few lookers and no offers during that long winter. In January, Bill Rademacher, a fellow coordinator and a pilot, rented a plane and flew me to Lexington where he formally turned over my pastoral care to John Meadows. There are no adequate words to describe the love and care Bill demonstrated during this transition process. I remain deeply grateful. In addition to transitioning pastoral care, I had two other purposes for taking this trip to Kentucky. 
One was to go with the elders from Covenant Church and the cell group leaders from the church to Mobile, Alabama for a week of pastoral training that was led by the four new wine teachers, Charles Simpson, Bob Mumford, Ern Baxter, and Don Basham. Before returning to Minneapolis, I also spent some time in Lexington beginning to search for a job. I made two or three trips to Lexington to hunt for a job between then and the end of March. I had one excellent interview at the Lexington office of Portman Equipment Company, which sold Clark forklifts and other material handling equipment. Portman was looking for a person between the ages of 35 and 42, married, involved in church and or other service-oriented social groups, and with no sales experience. That was me. Mr. Brooks, who interviewed me in Lexington, told me the company preferred inexperienced salespeople whom they could train in their ways from the beginning. They preferred married people because they tended to be more reliable and stable long-term employees. And they wanted people who had an interest in serving the community. That interview seemed to go well. A few days later, Mr. Brooks called to set up an appointment for me to go to the company's headquarters office in Northeast Cincinnati to be interviewed by William Portman, the founder and CEO. It was impressive, I must say, to walk in the front door of the office building and see, first of all, a sign welcoming me by name as a guest that day. A few minutes later, Mr. Portman took me to his office, an office most noticeable because it was simple and countrified, not elegant and impressive except for the mounted heads of several exotic animals that decorated the walls. That interview also seemed to go well. A key question was, why are you moving from Minneapolis to Lexington? This is a question I had prepared for. It did not seem wise to emphasize religious sounding reasons for our move, but I couldn't be deceptive either. I told him that one draw was that we'd be living closer to Patricia's aged mother and to my parents who were getting older also. I went on to say that we had good friends in the Lexington Covenant Church which had the same kind of emphasis on building strong relationships among the members as the Christian community that we'd been part of in Minneapolis had. Rather than talk about theological matters, though, I simply said the Bible has a strong emphasis on living out our faith in strong relationships of love and service to one another, and that we were committed to that kind of lifestyle. I left Mr. Portman's office without a job offer, but the conversation we had seems to have been positive. He certainly seemed like the kind of person who would be a good employer. In late March, Mr. Brooks called to say that Portman Equipment Company wanted to hire me but that as an entry-level salesperson, they would not pay to move me there. He said that once I had sold her house in Minneapolis and had moved to Lexington, I should come to see him, and the job would be mine. Of course, that was gratifying, but there were as yet no prospects for selling the house, and the six-month severance pay that the servants was giving me was ending in April. So how were we to survive financially? In the meantime, a number of people from the Free Church Fellowship had indeed been talking with the servants of the Lord, or now People of Praise coordinators, and had gone on to ask for release from the community in order to move to Lexington. I heard bits and pieces of that, but 
for integrity's sake, did not engage in conversation about it. I did know, of course, that the three women and one of the men in our household, all members of the Free Church Fellowship, were involved in that process, but Patricia and I did our best not to influence them one way or another. Around mid-March 1984, the coordinator sent letters to those asking to be released. The biggest part of each letter was common to all, appearing to be an official statement, basically saying, we do not understand why you think we, you should leave. We don't think you need to leave, but the decision is up to you to make. The rest of each letter was personal and geared toward the individual recipient, and from what I heard, some sounded more understanding than others. The bottom line is that people began to come to me to say that they had decided to move to Lexington with us to be part of Covenant Church. Although it was meaningful that people loved us and wanted to continue our relationship, it wasn't easy for me to hear. First, based on the experience of division when people left the community in 1981, it seemed likely that for most members of the community this too would seem divisive. I thought it likely that people would think that I wanted people to move. Second, it was scary to think that I would have pastoral responsibility for a number of individuals and families who were going to move 800 miles to a city and church they did not know. Therefore, when people came to me in almost every case, my response after listening and asking questions was something like this. This is a big decision. It will almost certainly have unexpected challenges and difficulties. The change in geography and culture may be hard and the church will not be perfect. If God will let you do anything else besides move to Lexington, you should. However, not many were dissuaded. And over the next two years, about 35 adults, along with more than 30 children, made that move. In early April, John Meadows called with big news. Since I was moving to Lexington with pastoral responsibility for people, the elders had decided that our Minnesota group should come as a flock. Flock, the term used for uh, subgroupings, each led by an elder in Covenant Church in Lexington, and that we should integrate into the church as a flock, along with the seven or eight other flocks into which the pastoral responsibility was already divided among those elders. John said, we decided to put you on the payroll right away so that you can be caring for the people as you all prepare to move and then are making the moves. Wow, the house had not sold and we had not moved, but I had a job in Lexington. In fact, the first paycheck from Covenant Church came at essentially the same time as our last check from the servants. I called Mr. Brooks truthfully, with some regret, to say that I would not be working for Portman Equipment. He wished me well and said if my situation changed, the opportunity would still be there. Patricia and I began to look at houses on the early trips to see if there might be one we could purchase if and when ours sold. With our realtor, Jerry Galloway, a member of Covenant Church, we looked at many, many houses but we did not think it wise to make an offer on any until our house in Minneapolis was at least under contract. Near Memorial Day, a woman came to look. She didn't seem like much of a prospect, but a day or so later she made an offer and put down earnest money on the house. 
Now it was time to get a house in Lexington quickly. Since, people was un Patri since Patricia was unable to make the trip, I went alone. All the houses we had looked at previously had either been sold or were not the right house for one reason or another. I looked at several more. Then one day, while in desperation, I was driving around on my own with a copy of the MLS listings, and I came across a little one-and-a-half-story Cape Cod in Lexington's Southland area. There was a for sale sign out front. I called our realtor who made an appointment for me to see it. Although it was not, not fancy, it was a nice house with four bedrooms and a walkout basement, which was a finished room perfect for cell meetings as well as for family activities. It had only one bathroom, but it would be adequate for our family. It was close to our price range, although a little high. To help us qualify for a loan, the Covenant Elders gave us a small raise before we even moved, remember, and before I could take on any new responsibilities within the community. After consulting with Patricia by phone and trying to describe the house in words, no cell phone with cameras, no texting, no emailing in those days, I made an offer and it was accepted with a closing date for July 31st. Back at home, we started to prepare to move. Then the woman who had made the offer on our Minneapolis house told the realtor she wanted to come back and look at it with her boyfriend. When they arrived and started to walk around looking over the property, both Patricia and I had the feeling that this is not a good thing. Something about it just seemed wrong. So while it was hugely disappointing, we were not too surprised when the realtor called later to say that she had withdrawn her offer. The only good news was that she didn't insist on having the earnest money returned. I've been sharing a long story here. This is why. The Lord clearly had led us through the process of making the decision to leave the servants and to move to Covenant Church. The Lord had stirred others to move with us. He had provided me a job and even a pay increase before we ever moved. I should have been able to meet this setback with faith and expectation of good, right? That's not what happened. Instead, I began to sink into despair and depression. When the sale fell through, we decided to try to sell the house ourselves so that we could lower the price a little. We put up a for sale by owner sign. On a late Friday afternoon, early in June, two men and a woman came by to look at the house. The impression we had of the man who seemed to be leading the group was that he was something of a fast talker, a high-pressure sort of person, like the proverbial used car salesman. Before leaving, he made an offer and wanted to give us earnest money. It caused us consternation. Therefore, we took time to seek advice from a neighbor who was a lawyer. He offered to look over our paperwork at no charge, and when he told us the paperwork was legitimate, we signed it. On Monday, the buyer called to say he'd changed his mind and wanted his earnest money back, which by law, people in Minnesota can do within three days of making an offer. It was almost a relief to give his money back, but it left us with no prospects for selling the house with less than a month until we were to close on the house in Lexington. We talked with our realtor in Lexington and we decided to wait and to pray diligently until July 30th before 
informing the sellers of the house that we couldn't close if no buyer came. That July was hot, 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 even in Minnesota. Depression deepened. I was fearful and angry. I spent a lot of time in our basement half-dressed, sitting or lying on a mattress that lay on the floor. Because it was cooler, yes, but also because I was trying to hide from people in reality. I tried to pray and read the Bible, but I got little relief. The only scriptures that made sense were some of the Psalms. Thank God for the honesty of the psalmists who were not afraid to sing out their fear and frustration as well as their faith and hope. They expressed their feelings openly to God in words that I wouldn't have dared to say to him myself. Psalm 6, 3-7 is an example. My soul also is greatly troubled, but you, O Lord, how long? Turn, O Lord, deliver my life, save me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death there is no remembrance of you, and Sheol who will give you praise. I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. Again in Psalm 10, verse 1. Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? No one came to see our house or even ask about it until Saturday afternoon, July the 29th. Then a lady who appeared to be about retirement age came. She looked the house over and expressed interest in it, especially when she saw the bedroom space. She told us that her intention was to open a group home for special needs people. We told her that we had to have an answer by the next day because we had to say something to our sellers in Lexington. She made no contact that Sunday. Finally, late that evening, July 30th, I called the realtor to say we had no deal. The closing there was set for early the next morning. He said there was no way to contact the sellers so late in the evening, rather he'd have to tell them at the actual closing appointment. I wish I could say I responded to this with great faith and trust. Not so. I tried to turn it over to the Lord, but I was crushed. At 8.30 a.m. on Monday, the lady who had seen the house on Saturday called to say she was ready to bring an offer and earnest money. That's just great, I thought. Too little, too late. I called the realtor, who was already at the scheduled closing, where he had just told the sellers we had reneged on our deal. I told him that we had a new offer coming. He consulted with the sellers. They were already in the process of moving to Virginia for new jobs and since they had no other good option, they agreed to extend the contract to August 22nd, the absolute final day. We signed the purchase agreement for the Minneapolis house. Because we had agreed to let the lady assume our FHA loan at risk to ourselves if she defaulted, there was less red tape and she didn't have to go through the rigorous qualifying examinations. Closing was set for early morning on Wednesday, August 20th. We set about getting everything ready to move in order to leave immediately after the closing. We now had some hope, but still we knew everything could fall through any time. 
I was quite aware that I was no superstar Christian. Two things happened in the days just before the closing that are quite memorable. First was wonderful. A few months after we had moved to that house, a couple with a young daughter had moved next door. Willie, the husband, was quite a few years older than his wife. Her parents, we eventually discovered, were members of the servants of the Lord and lived not far away. Willie had worked for New England Bell for 30 years and retired. He had taken a job with Amoco Oil in Minneapolis. Willie was a character. He had long gray hair, not at all common for men his age in those days. He loved to set his stereo speakers out on his porch on sunny Saturdays and play music, really loud music, for the neighborhood. One of his favorite recordings was Willie Nelson and Leon Russell's double LP, One for the Road. In my memory, I can still hear their version of Hank Williams' I Saw the Light blasting out for all to hear. Willie was devoted to marijuana and alcohol. Thankfully, he did not drive. He carried a flask to work in his hip pocket when he rode the Metro Transit bus to work him back. It was not unusual for Willie, on days when the weather was decent, to get off the bus at Nicollet Avenue South and West 40th Street and to go into Martin Luther King Park where he would sit and enjoy smoking a joint before walking the three blocks home. Eventually, I came to the realization that Willie had at least some alcohol in his system all the time but on Saturdays and Sundays he drank freely. Several times on Saturday afternoon, when well into his cup, cups, Willie had asked me to come over to his house where he wanted to talk philosophy and religion. I learned that as a young man he had studied under Jean-Paul Sartre in France. Later he had dropped acid or LSD with Timothy Leary. Willie really knew philosophy, especially existentialism and the modern philosophies of despair. I was able to carry on a conversation with him on these matters only because I had read Francis Schaeffer's work. Even so, I felt out of my league, but the insights gained from Schaeffer must have been the right ones. How well I remember Willie's words on one of those Saturdays. Leaning back in his chair, his eyes seemed, seeming to look into me. He said, you amaze me. You've been through all the things I have, yet you still believe. I'd had no idea that he was talking with me, thinking that I had journeyed experientially through the contemporary philosophies like he had. Reflecting on that conversation later, I realized that Willie drank and smoked pot not so much for enjoyment, but to dull the pain of philosophical despair. He could not stand to live with no hope of there being any true truth, as Schaefer puts it, or any valid reason to have hope for a meaningful future without anesthetizing himself against the emptiness. His words revealed that he was a seeker who had come to believe there's nothing to seek. He saw that I had hope and that I had confidence in the one who is truth and that I had someone and something to live for. Clearly, Willie wished he did too. While we were trying to sell our house, I had purchased a copy of Good News for Modern Man version of the New Testament, and also a copy of Francis Schaeffer's Escape from Reason, and I had given them to Willie. On the flyleaf of the Schaeffer book, I wrote a note saying that Willie reminded me of the lyrics from a song that he had often played for, for us neighbors. I've always been crazy, 
but it's kept me from going insane, sank Waylon Jennings, Jennings. And I told him that I had found Schaefer's book helpful in understanding the hopeless plight of many in our culture. Two evenings before we were scheduled to close on the house, Willie called to say he needed to talk to me. Even though our Free Church Fellowship friends were gathered at our house for a time of prayer and worship, I sensed that my priority should be to talk with Willie. He met me on his front porch, blurting out urgently. I've been reading the book you gave me. I assumed he meant the Schaefer book until he continued, if a man really believed that book, he would have to give up everything he has. Then I realized that Willie was talking about good news for modern man and that he was actually taking Jesus' words seriously. Words, things that Jesus said in such passages as these. Once, when loud, loud, large crowds were going along with Jesus, he turned and said to them, those who come to me cannot be my disciples unless they love me more than they love their father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, and themselves as well. Those who do not carry their own cross and come after me cannot be my disciples. If one of you is planning to build a tower, you sit down first and figure out what it will cost to see if you have enough money to finish the job. If you don't, you won't be able to finish the tower after laying the foundation, and all who see what happened will make fun of you. You began to build, but can't finish the job, they will say. If a king goes out with 10,000 men to fight another king who comes against him with 20,000 men, he'll sit down first and decide if he's strong enough to face the other king. If he isn't, he'll send messengers to meet the other king and ask for terms of peace while that king is still a long way off. In the same way, concluded Jesus, none of you can be my disciple unless you give up everything you have. Luke 14, 25 to 33 in the Good News translation. Again, then Jesus said to his disciples, If any of you want to come with me, you must forget yourself, carry your cross, and follow me. For if you want to save your own life, you'll lose it. But if you lose your life for my sake, you will find it. Will you gain anything if you win the whole world but lose your life? Of course not. There's nothing you can give to regain your life. Matthew 16, 24 to 26 from the Good News translation. Nearly awestruck, I responded, Willie, you are very close to the kingdom of God. I know many professing Christians who don't see this as clearly as you. We went on to talk a bit longer, and then I prayed for him to be fully enlightened and to be able to surrender himself to Jesus. As I left to return to the meeting with my Christian friends, my heart cried out for Willie to know the truth, truth with a capital T. I've never been able to find out what followed in his life after we moved, but I truly hope I will see my friend when we gather around Jesus' throne in the age to come. The second memorable thing happened the next night when several friends came over to help pack our belongings into the 26-foot Penske truck I'd rented. Once it had been packed, one of the brothers started to back the truck further into the driveway in order to get it clear of the street. There was an awful crunching noise. The truck had run into the gutter that went around the porch. The truck was not damaged, but the spouting and the eaves were. The brother 
driving promised to see that was fixed after we moved, but there was nothing to be done at 10 o'clock that night. The closing started early the next morning, August 20th, at our lawyer's, lawyer neighbor's office. The first order of business was to inform the buyer that there was damage to the house and to try to assure her that it would be fixed quickly. We put our commitment into writing and she accepted it, understandably a bit reluctantly. When we got down to business, we started signing the paperwork. All was well until it came time for her to give the down payment money. Then she handed us a cashier's check for an amount that was more than $2,000 less than it should have been. When we asked where the rest of the down payment was, she offered some confusing rationale for why she only owed the amount she had given us. The lawyer tried numerous times to explain why the amount she had given was insufficient, but she just couldn't seem to understand. Meanwhile, Patricia and I were praying. After this going on for more than 30 minutes, I suddenly had an inspiration from the Lord, I'm sure, about how to explain the matter, and this time she finally got it. Then the woman started to write a personal check for the remainder. Well, there was no way we could accept that. We had to get the money into our bank account and have it cleared so that we could get the cashier's check ourselves to take to the closing of the Lexington House on the morning of the 22nd. It took a while for our buyer to accept that reality also, but finally she began to scramble to get the rest of the money. It became clear that she simply did not have the funds on hand and that there was no way to get us cash that day. Finally, our lawyer, who was serving us free of charge because we were neighbors and because our sons were friends, offered that if she could get money transferred to his law office account, he would have his bank issue us a cashier's check. Finally, the buyer made a call from the lawyer's phone, which I could not help but overhear to her credit card company, Citibank, South Dakota. After a long discussion, she convinced them to wire money to the lawyer's account, and they did. But it was after 2.30 in the afternoon before the transfer happened. There was no way for us to finish signing the paperwork and drive to the bank before it closed at 3 o'clock. However, the lawyer contacted a bank officer, explained the situation, and was able to arrange for us to pick up the check at the drive through window after the bank had already closed. It was 3.30 p.m. by the time we got the check. We left the bank and went to pick up our children who'd been staying with friends, and then we drove back to our former house to get the truck. It was 5 p.m. on Wednesday evening when we started the long trip to Lexington with me driving the truck and Patricia driving our car. Although it was 100 miles further, we had chosen to drive by the way of Iowa rather than to go through Chicago driving the two vehicles. We drove about as long a time as the children and the drivers could stand that evening before we stopped at an Iowa motel along Interstate 80, 80 east of Des Moines. The next day we drove and drove and drove but there were lots of stops with children and with both adults driving. Finally, about 1 a.m. on August 22nd, we arrived at the Meadows home in Lexington. Thankfully, next morning our realtor was able to postpone our closing until early afternoon. That gave us time to open a bank account and arrange to have the appropriate check in hand for the buyers. 
Nothing had seemed to come easy in the move to Lexington. We never questioned that it was God's will for us to make the change. However, I certainly discovered my need for the fruit of the Spirit to come to maturity within me. Joy, peace, patience, and perseverance were often in short supply, and the lack showed up in relationships. It was difficult to act loving, gentle, and kind to others, especially to my family, when inside I was feeling pressured, anxious, and often angry about the seeming resistance, the disappointments, and the delays we faced. Finally, we'd arrived, and we purchased the house on Millbrook Drive without Patricia ever having been inside it. Thankfully, from the start, she loved the place and quickly made it truly home for our family. We also arrived just a few days before Covenant Church's 10th anniversary celebration began. Although Covenant had purchased a building at 2700 Todd's Road only a year or two earlier, these celebration meetings were held in Heritage Hall, part of Lexington Center in the downtown area of the center city. Many special guests traveled to Lexington to celebrate with us, including the guest speaker, Charles Simpson, one of the new wine teachers. At last, we have passed through our wilderness and have come to the place of rest, I thought. That chapter ends there. Hebrews 13, 14 says here, we don't have a lasting city, but we're seeking the city which is, which is to come. As I think about ending that chapter the way it did, thinking that we were coming to a place of rest, I was reminded of this passage in Hebrews. In those early years of seeking to understand and to live as a faithful disciple of Jesus and a citizen of God's kingdom in the context of a committed Christian community, I had a tendency to over-idealize the vision that God had given to us. I would find myself believing that we were more than we actually were. I was overlooking our immaturity and not giving enough credence to the weakness of the flesh. However, our God is the relentless Redeemer, and His Spirit is always at work to set us free and to transform us as we keep our focus on Jesus. 2 Corinthians 3, 4, excuse me, I got that reference wrong. I think it's 2 Corinthians 3, 17 I meant to have, say, through verse, chapter 4, verse 6, talks about this. It's a passage well worth meditating on. May the Lord bless you with the awareness of his work in you this week in whatever you may face.